Hi guys, and welcome back to the Redcoat History Podcast and YouTube channel. Today we're talking all about the 5th 60th Rifles, also sometimes known as the Royal Americans or later as the King's Royal Rifle Corps. Their descendants, of course, are now part of the Rifles. If you're watching the video right now, these images are of the reenactment group, the li living history group of the regiment during a training exercise in the Midlands when I met up with them a few years ago. If you're listening to the audio-only version of this episode, then I hope you still get a nice sense of the event from just from the sound. Riflemen of the peninsula are often romanticised, mainly due to Bernard Cornwall's Sharp books and the subsequent TV show. Sharp was famously an officer of the 95th Rifles, but did you know there was a number of other rifle units that served in the peninsula? They aren't as well known as most of them were made up of foreigners, and very few of them left memoirs, but they performed excellent service. Wellington himself described them as the most useful, active and brave troops in the field. Well today, I'm joined by the expert on the 5th 60th, the expert, Rob Griffith. Rob has written a brilliant book on the unit that can be found on Amazon and other booksellers. I'll leave a link in the description. He's also very active on Twitter, where he goes by the handle at Rob underscore Griffith. He's well worth a following. I must say, he's an incredibly nice bloke. So before we begin the interview, I just want to take a moment to ask you to subscribe and to sign up for my mailing list over at www.redcoathistory.com newsletter. I feel that now more than ever, it's important to keep our military history alive, to share the stories, to honor our ancestors. That's what I'm trying to do here, but I really need your help. So please do subscribe and help to spread the word. When you sign up for the Redcoat History newsletter, you receive a free ebook all about the Martini Henry rifle, as well as monthly updates from me that are packed with interesting stories and links. Also, as it's nearly Christmas, I just want to remind you that my new book is now out, The Military History Geek's Guide to the Peninsula War, Part 1. It's a fast read, packed with first-person accounts of the battles of Rolisa, Vimero, Karuna, and Talavera. Just search on Amazon and Apple Books and you'll find it. Anyway, enough of my rambling, let's get to the interview. I'm Rob Griffith. Um, I first met the 60th, like you know, lots of people my age, um, watching Sharp on the TV and I'm reading the Sharp books. And there was a ca the character of uh, uh, Captain Fredrickson, who was quite an intriguing character with his false teeth and his wig and all that kind of stuff. And his uh, his men who were dirty, but the rifles were clean. You know, sort of, and, you know, and I've always enjoyed researching uh, topics that are slightly off off kilter so like if i was looking at the battle of britain i'd look at anti-aircraft guns rather than spitfires you know it's it's just more interesting to study things that um are a little more unusual and of course you know for an independent rifleman it's the 95th foot that the most studied and everyone knows about it because of sharp 
Um, so when I was looking for a, um, a living history group to join, yeah, I could have joined the 95th Rifles. There's several groups in the UK that do that. Um, I could have been a red coat. That seemed a little bit too boring. <laughs> yeah. And there was this group that was doing the fifth, the fifth, 60th, and they were based locally to me. And so I joined and got all the kit and started doing, you know, um, the living history displays. And at the same time, one of the reasons I was looking to join living history uh, was I was writing historical novels set during the, the Napoleonic Wars. And I thought that, you know, actually firing the weapons and wearing the uniforms would be good research. Um, and a little after I joined, um, another reenactor who was on the French side, who happened to be an editor for a publishing company, approached the group and said, look, you, you know, you've got an interesting unit history. Can someone write a history of the unit for us? And um, the founder of the group, Steve, considered it, but you know, he wasn't really a writer and didn't have the time. But because I had been doing writing and you know, I've, I've you know, done some historical research for that, um, I volunteered, put a proposal in, and got the gig, um, and then spent um, two years intensively researching the group. I was the first one to write a history of the, of the unit um, since uh, the 1920s. Um, so there's a lot more historical um, sources available through the internet. I found uh, some letters from one guy in an um, archive in New York and another one in an archive in Geneva and spent lots of days in the National Archives. And um, whereas in, with the 95th Rifles, the, one of the reasons they're so well known is they wrote a lot of memoirs. There's a couple of dozen memoirs in the 95th. But nobody in the 560th wrote a memoir, um, which meant I had to look at other sources. So I went into the National Archives and looked at their pay lists, the regimental returns. And you can really begin to, you know, find some lovely stories, you know, in in those kind of archives. So after two years, the book Rifleman was published. It's, it's done fairly well. It's been fairly well reviewed. Um I've now uh, just completed a second book, which I'm, wait I'm waiting to send to the publisher, and I'm about to start a third. So are, they, now... are they also about riflemen or something different? Uh, the second book uh, is about the battles of Ariomelinos and Almaraz, uh, two little actions uh, that Hill did in the, in, in the south of Spain. And again, they haven't been studied in their own right. Um, so I've, you know, I found some nice things about that, and I've used a lot of the techniques I used in riflemen, looking at the original paperwork, you know, things like the casualty reports and stuff. Um, you know, so again, I've uh, you know a lot of the older Victorian and early 20th century histories are very much focused on the officers. You know, you only get the officers' names mentioned for casualties and that kind of thing. Uh, whereas if you look hard enough, you can find out stories about individual soldiers, you know, which I think is more interesting in, in many ways. You know, you know, you can find out that, you know, so-and-so died. He was, a, he was a cobbler from Coventry and he had a brother in the unit. So it all just makes it a lot more personal, I think. Yeah. No, I, uh, I, I love your blog as well, actually. Maybe you could just briefly you. Uh, intro your blog and just uh, tell people where to find that if they want to know more about you yes um well the blog came about to obviously help promote the book you know um uh, you know there's um the only way you sell books is, is is by promoting them yourself really and um so uh, um daring duty and cunning plans uh, dot com i'll i'll send you a link you can put it in the description um at wordpress is you know his wordpress blog and I used it initially to expand on research I was doing. 
you know, and you know, like there's a great story in there. Um, and there's a guy who was um, a sergeant major in the unit in the fifth 60th who was promoted um, from the ranks and eventually left the 60th to join uh, the Royal York Rangers and eventually became um, a lieutenant colonel. So it's basically a sharp story going from a rifleman to a lieutenant colonel. Um, but half of his career was out of the fifth 60th, so I didn't really cover it that, that much in the book. But having the blog enabled me to put all the details in there. And, you know, and uh, it's, um, it, you know, people find me through the blog. You know, I've uh, just done a recent, uh, you know, because of, of the lockdown we're all facing, I've just done a recent post uh, with 10 memoirs that you can download for free from various places. I've just saved all... the link for that today. Looks excellent. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of my sources are, um, you know, memoirs written by the guys uh, after the war. And, you know, I think it's the first war where you do get a lot of memoirs, you know, written. There's a real craze for it in Britain at the time. And a lot from other ranks as well as officers as well, which is good. And, you know, I've got a library of over 200 of them now, um, you know, which is great because, you know, the PDFs, so I can search them. And I can, you know, link them to certain battles or certain events. And, you know, it's, especially if you have... You know, like the you know when I was researching um, Almaraz and Ari Molinos, having you know ten, fifteen different memoirs all covering the same events. You know, you get interesting things where they disagree. You know, they're, you know, there's, they're all looking at the same event, but they're all slightly different. And you get other things where they confirm each other, which is great. Or one expands on what happened in in another. So you know. I think always trying to get back to those original sources is, is, is really important. Well, so I suppose then let's let's sort of backtrack a little bit. And can you give me the brief overview of how um, in general rifle units in the British Army and then specifically how the 560th came about? What was what what's their sort of um, backstory? OK, um, so um, at the beginning of uh, the wars with France, 1793, um, the British Army was very small, hadn't had any serious action um, since the American War of Independence, and basically wasn't prepared for the war. Um, and the French Army have always been very good with light infantry. And at the start of the Revolutionary War, they had a, you know they had like fourteen regiments of light infantry, and the British Army had none. Um, and so in the, the initial campaigns, uh, the famous one being the 1793 and 4 campaign with the Duke of York, um, uh, he found that the British Army lacked any kind of counter to the French light infantry. Because the French, you know, the French can, you know, would come up in, in open order, take a few sh pot shots at a British line, and the British would be all there in a condensed line and not have any, you know, not be able to, to fire and, uh, and reply, you know, um, in any kind of decent manner um so the first way the british army solved that was by hiring foreign soldiers um it's a quite common for all the armies to use foreign troops and you know armies still do it today including ours um so they got french and dutch and german emigres who were escaping from the revolution to form units of light infantry and a lot of those were armed with rifles that released a mix of muskets and, and rifles. And so they began to fight the French and most of them were sent to the West Indies, where, of course, 
you know, they needed light infantry because we all see the Caribbean as nice beaches and holiday resorts. But actually, inland, they're all very mountainous, you know, uh, very heavily wooded. And so you need light infantry to fight there. So that's where a lot of the light infantry went. And they all died from yellow fever. And so by 1797, a lot of those foreign units had been so reduced that, you know, you only had like a couple of hundred people in each regiment. So they were all amalgamated into this unit called the 60th Regiment of Foot, who were a kind of basically a British Foreign Legion. They'd existed since the Seven Years' War. They'd always been a, a mix of mainly foreign, mainly German recruits with a few English and British and Scottish, whatever else. And so... Most of these foreign units got amalgamated into the first to the fourth battalions of the 60th. But the Duke of York had also seen rifle troops operating on the continent and wanted a British rifle unit. So at the end of 1797, he decided that there's going to be a fifth fully rifle armed battalion um, of the 60th. And they were formed from a couple of these foreign uh, uh, rifle units. Uh, they were formed on Barbados uh, just about Christmas Day, uh, 1797. Um, there was another another um, three companies formed on the Isle of Wight uh, a, little, a little bit later. They fought in the in the rebellion in Ireland in 1798. Uh, but then the unit spent a long time in the Caribbean, um, and then eventually it came back via Nova Scotia in Canada uh, to the UK, and were going to go to Venezuela uh, um, in an expedition led by Sir Arthur Wellesley, later the Duke of Wellington. And it was only a, a few weeks before that um, that expedition sailed that they got diverted to Portugal as the, uh, the Portuguese and the Spanish began to revolt against French rule. So it was only sort of chance that they ended up in the peninsula. And once they're in the peninsula, um, Wellington, Wellington, like Duke of York, again began to realise that he needed not only rifle armed troops, but he needed some rifle armed troops with diff the different brigades because he had, you know, initially he, he formed the, the 60th and four companies of the 95th into one brigade. But after the Battle of, um, and now I must pronounce this right because you taught me how to pronounce it, uh, <laughs> the Battle of, of Elisa. I think technically, um, even if we want to get really technical, I think it might be Holisa, but I thought that was a step Holisa. too far. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So after the Battle of of Elisa, um, he decided to split some of the companies off from the battalion to give the other uh, brigades some riflemen as well. And that's basically how they operated throughout the whole Peninsula War. The 95th stayed as a battalion unit in the Light Division, uh, whereas the 560th were split up into companies and each infantry brigade had a, you know, had a, had a company of the 560th. And they operated with the Light Companies of the Redcoats so uh, a brigade of, uh, of three Redcoat infantry battalions would have the rifle company and then three light companies. And they would operate as the advanced guards. They'd do patrols in battle. They would screen the brigade from the French skirmisher, uh, skirmishers and generally act as the, a little small independent rifle, uh, rifle and light infantry unit. Um, and they served that way all the way through the Peninsular War. And because they were so split up, it means they were basically everywhere. Yeah, and so when I was writing the book Rifleman, you know, I basically had to cover almost every battle in the peninsula. Yeah, apart from a couple where it was only the light division, 
you know, um, they were, you know, at Talavera, Frente de Noro, Albrera, everything. Yeah, um, and did did that affect their unit cohesion and their morale being split up like that from the sources you've read, or were they very much proud of you know fifth sixtieth and what they stood for, or, or or was it quite a strange unit to be part of in these little disjointed, you know, company sized detachments? Yeah, I mean, basically from eighteen, I think start of eighteen ten all the way through to the end of the war in April eighteen fourteen, the companies did not get together. And so they were all, they were all separate. I mean, there was, you know, there were three in the second division and three together in the third division. But apart from that, they were all very much spread out. And certainly they had a problem with desertion, which every foreign corps did, because a lot of the recruits came from the French army, from prisoners of war and deserters from the French army. And if things got too tough, they could go back. And obviously, you know, they could, you know, think they might think that if they deserted to the French, they were then one step closer to, to Germany and home or whatever, because most of them were Germans. But there were Russians and Poles and Hungarians too. Um, so, they, you know, but they didn't have as bad a uh, desertion problem as some other units. Um, they don't seem to have had many court martials. They had a few, but nothing out of the ordinary in terms of court martials for, you know, theft or whatever else. Um, and it was one of the things that I wanted to to find out when I researched them, but I, I didn't come to any conclusive answer because I didn't find anything saying that, you know, this this is a problem, let's get them back together, which would be the obvious solution. Um, I did find some inspection reports for individual companies, which were very complimentary, saying they're an excellent unit, you know, and all, all this kind of thing. So I don't think it did. You would have expected it to have a problem, yeah, because typically... A battalion operated with a quartermaster who did got all the supplies and all that kind of thing and surgeons and so you know what they did each of the separate companies relied on the infrastructure of the senior battalion in in the brigade they were attached to you know so they used that surgeon and that kind of stuff but it, it must have had an effect you know it's just a shame i couldn't find anything saying that you know <laughs> And were they considered, I mean, maybe I, maybe I should phrase this question differently. What sort of training did they have that differentiated them from, uh, particularly from the sort of line infantry battalions? How would their training have differed? How would their, um, their mindset have been different to your average Redcoat battalion, for example? Um, the British Army's light infantry manual for the time was written by the CO of the 560th, uh, Baron de Rottenberg. Um, and that outlines a whole load of different tactics. Uh, part of the book is about, you know, how you extend into the line. So there's six paces between each file of two soldiers and that type of thing. Um, this is a half it's the drill, but most of it is actually how you do a patrol. What happens when you go into a, um, a village at night to check the French are there? And it says things like check, check the pubs. <laughs> you know, Good so, advice. Yeah, very detailed guide as to how to patrol territory and that kind of thing um and so they would have been trained in all that kind of thing uh they would have been trained to shoot which a lot of redcoats basically weren't you know they, they you know an all redcoat unit didn't have a very large allowance of cartridges for training whereas the rifle units did um they were trained to shoot uh up to 300 yards with uh, this thing uh baker rifle Oh wow! So for those who are listening rather than watching, Rob's holding up. Uh, is that is that a is that a replica, Rob, or is that a, a an original? It is. 
It is a replica. Um, the brown vest on the wall behind me, I'm afraid, it, it is original because they, you know, they, they're a lot cheaper. Um, originals of a bag itself for about ten thousand pounds. So, uh, so this is a uh, um, you know this is a, um, a fairly common replica. Um, but um, yeah, so they, they were trained to shoot, um, and you know they're trained to do things like judge distance. So that you know, if someone was further away, they'd aim higher up and all that kind of stuff. Um, and you know, they were trained to pick up to pick off the officers. You know, so if a French column was approaching, you know, they they'd hit the officers first, and then the drummers and the sergeants, so that uh, it reduced the command and control of the French as they approached. And a lot of them, because in foreign armies like, like the French army, yeah, you know, a lot of them were ex ex-French light infantry, uh, ex-Prussian light infantry, light infantry, and so they already had the skills. And the reason so many of the foreign units were light infantry was uh, in Germany and Hungary and like that, you had a, a tradition of hunting with rifles. Yeah, uh, because, um, you know, there was a, a tradition of, of hunting um you know, on the continent with guns, and it, you know, not just you know the aristocracy, but normal you know everyday people as well. Uh, whereas you, that didn't happen in in the UK. You had um, you know the aristocrat the the aristocrats you know um, shooting their pheasants and that type of thing. Um, you know, their gamekeepers knew how to use guns uh, properly, and in fact, there was a, an attempt to form a um, a regiment of gamekeepers. But it was blocked in the House of Lords because the, they didn't want to lose their staff. Um, you know, so you know, and if you read books on like rifle theory, you know, written at the time, you know, you know, there's this big thing about teaching people to judge distance because that's the key thing when you're shooting is you've got to judge the distance, you know, so you know where to aim. And you know, how, and you know, when the Experimental Corps of Riflemen was formed, which became the 95th, it wasn't. You know, the rifles that we experiment, because they were widely used in Europe already, it was whether British troops could be trained to shoot rifles. You know, and of course they, they could. Um, but it's still, you know, you had a, you know, you, you know it, was e it was still easier to, to form these foreign light infantry unit, units from experienced people as well. You know, so you had a, you know, it, it, in the, um, in Wellington's army in the peninsula, you know, there was always more riflemen outside of the 95th than there was in it, you know, because as well, you know, as well as the 95th, um, you had the Portuguese uh, Casadors, you had the, the the Brunswick Light Infantry Regiment, you had the King's German Legion riflemen, you know, so there's always a lot more riflemen than a lot of people su suppose, you know. Would there have been uh, rifles issued to regular light companies in um, in line regiments? Not officially, Um but some did. If you look at the inspection reports for some battalions, you'll see they've got a handful of rifles. You know, um, I think one of the Fusilier uh, regiments did. You know, and that was basically a personal choice by the colonel. You know, um, to to, to subsidise it. Again, so the problem with you know, people often ask me, well, if the rifle was so good, why didn't everyone have it? It's because it was three times the price of a musket. It cost considerable amounts of money to maintain. Because of the the rifling down the barrel used to get clogged with gunpowder and needed you know um, cleaning. I mean I you know uh, when I fire my smoothbore um, uh, Baker rifle you know for living history, after about twenty shots he's good. Clean. 
you know, and if you know the, and that doesn't have life link. Um, so you've got a lot, a lot to maintain, you have to train the people. And also it was a question of the tactics. Most of the tactics at the time was line versus column or line versus line. You know, and for that, you don't need a, a weapon that's accurate. Brown Bess was a smoothbore musket and it's designed to be easy to load and quick to load and quick to shoot. And the whole sort of tactics of the time was you get a line of red-coated infantry against a line of Frenchmen, and it's basically accuracy was not important. You were shooting at a target the size of a line of 500 men. Um, and so you didn't need an accurate weapon. And be, being a smooth bore, uh, you know, with no rifling, it was, it was cheap to produce. But once you started fighting not in a line or not in a column, but in extended order, you know, just a couple of men, you know, um, sort of pairs of men on their own. You know, if you're shooting at other light infantry who are also just pairs of men, you had to have a weapon that was capable of, of actually hitting something. And so rifles have been used on the continent for many years, and the British had toyed with them a few times, but never really um, uh, used them that much. And at the start of the wars of France, they used foreign-made rifles. Um, but eventually, because of supply issues and the fact that the countries that were selling them kept getting invaded by France, um, they decided to make their own. And so they came up with a, a competition, and the eventual winner was a guy called Baker, who, who, who designed the infantry rifle. And because it was rifled and it spanned the ball, it was actually a lot more accurate. And it's a bit like, you know, if, you, if you're playing rugby and you, when you throw a rugby ball, you, you spin it and it, you know, actually, you know, lands where it's meant to. And so a rifle spins the ball. Also, the ball fits much more tightly in the barrel. So you get a much more efficient use of that propellant, the gunpowder. And so it goes further and it goes more accurate. So whereas a, a musket could shoot, uh, you know, could hit, a t you know, shooting at a man-sized target with a musket, you'd, you know, you, you had some chance at about 100 yards. With a Baker rifle, you could have some chance of hitting at about 300 yards. So that's quite a considerable distance. And so what often, ha you know, what, what is the happening start advancing either in, you know, their own light infantry, or, 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 you know, it was a column or a line. And the riflemen of the 95th or the 60th or any other unit would be able to start pick, picking off the officers at 300 yards. Yeah, and so, you know, if you imagine marching 300 yards at a steady pace, that gives, you know, the riflemen a fair time to actually, you know, start inflicting casualties. And once the French got a bit closer, like 100 yards, then the length of time it would take a rifleman to reload which could be like 30 seconds, you know, the French could be, you know, knocking on your door by that time. So at that stage, musket-armed light infantry and musket-armed redcoats would take over. The, the riflemen would get behind the redcoats and they'd start, the redcoats would start start the volleys and, you know, and, and actually stop the French dead. You know, so, you know, that's one of the things Wellington did in, in the peninsula. He, you, know, you know, he had this tactic of having his men on a slow but the riflemen and the light infantry would be on the forward slope, would start picking the French off as they approached, you know, and st stopping the French seeing where the, the main line was. And as soon as the French got too close, the, 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 the red coat light infantry and the green jacketed riflemen would scoot around the outside, 
of the um, battalion and, and that the you know and that the French suddenly have the shock of coming across that you know that volley of you know um, from the line and do we know have you come across uh, any sources uh, talking about this from the French point of view was did they have a fear of the rifle did it ever affect their sort of tactical doctrine when fighting the British or or to them it didn't make a big difference I mean what do we know about about the French attitude um, certainly uh, at the end of the uh, campaign in the Pyrenees in 1813 uh, Marshal Soult wrote to the French Minister of War to excuse why he'd been defeated so often um, and one of the reasons he gave was the rifleman of the 60th he, he actually names the unit and says that every time a French officer goes forward to lead his men you know to encourage them to, to get them to, to advance he's killed you know um and obviously that you know and salt complains that the the proportion of officers killed far is far out you know far outweighs what is what is normal and you know obviously that wasn't only the 60th it was the 95th and other units as well but it just shows you know it shows the effect it could have that you know if you're a french unit and you're you know advancing towards the British and you're just faltering and, you, and you know, it's the time when your officers need to, you know, lead from the front as they all did. And if they start getting, you know, picked off, then the whole advance will just collapse. Yeah, no, that, that, that makes sense. And um, one thing I'm interested in is I understand that the 560th were the most decorated uh, battalion in during the peninsula, or should I say, I believe the individuals had the most clasps on their on their Peninsula War medal. Is is that correct? There was two guys, was it? Yeah. What, what's the story yeah. there? Can you tell us a bit about these individuals and, and you know, uh, the, the history of them? Okay. So the 560th were one of, one of only three battalions to be present throughout the Peninsula War. And um, in the 1840s, long after the war, after a lot of the guys had died, um, the British government, issued the general service medal and you, you, you had to apply for it it wasn't automatically um you know um, uh, um given to people and um there was two guys who got i think 16 clasps off the top of my head uh one was a guy from the 45th foot um who the units all the war and the other guy was a guy called lockstadt uh, uh from the 560th and he again had 16 clasps and was present at almost all the battles, you know, all the, you know, all the, all, all the major actions. And he probably wasn't the only one, you know, because all the physics were, were foreigners. Um, a lot of them wouldn't have bothered applying as it was 30 years after the war. A lot of them would probably dead already. Um, so, you know, it's not necessarily the fact that he was the only one entitled to all those medals. And there may be some of them were entitled to more, you know, from other units as well. Uh, but there was him, and there was another officer. Uh, there was an officer called uh, Major uh, John Gleef. Um, he had 15 clasps to his various medals. Officers were given slightly different medals, um, but uh, he had 15 clasps and stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's because you know the, the 60th were a lot of actions so you could build up that kind of number you know um, whereas some of the units in like the fourth division or something like that would only have you know been involved in a lot of a lot fewer actions 
And have you come across those two guys, uh, Lukstadt and uh, Galif, in your research? Do you know anything about them or is, is their history kind of not very well known? Um, Galif, uh, I, I know a lot. Um, uh, for a start, I know one of his, his descendants. Um, you personally uh, know him? Fam- yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. um, um, the family actually um, remained serving the British Army for all through the Victorian period into the first and second of the wars. And um, there's a guy called Rodney Galeef, who he lives not actually not far from me, uh, who's uh, sort of the head of the family now. And so he gave me a lot of information. Um, I found Galeef's letters in a um, uh, archive engineer. Um, unfortunately, not many from the Peninsula period, a lot more after and a few before. Um, although Rodney uh, remembers playing with his journal when he was a kid, but it's, it's now lost some, somewhere in the family. Painful, yes. Um, so Galif, you know, there's fair, fair information on, you know, Lockstadt being uh, an ordinary rifleman, there's a lot less on. I could trace him through the pay lists and that kind of thing. Yeah. So I know when he joined and, you know, where he was and that type of thing. Um, but for, you know, for a lot of the work, I mean, there's, there's very little information, you know, um, with, but, um, yeah, sorry. uh, well, I was just going to say with, with Galif then, what was his story? Was he, was he Swiss? Uh, where was he from? Yeah. Um, he was Swiss. And, uh, in 1792, he was serving in the French army in one of the many Swiss units they had. Uh, and the revolution, um, his unit um, left the barracks and went to join the Royalist armies in, in Germany. Um, he went back to Switzerland to defend that against uh, France. And he felt that he'd had a good job as, a, as an army officer. Um, he wasn't he, he wasn't suited to being a merchant or anything else. And for him, you know, joining another army was the only thing he could think to do. So he went to Holland and joined one of the the the, um, the regiments there, the the Red, uh, the Red Hussars. And he fought with them in seventeen ninety three and four, and then he joined um, the British Army in a foreign unit called the York Rangers. And when that was disbanded, he joined the fifth sixtieth, and he remained in the fifth sixtieth all the way from seventeen ninety eight all the way through to um, 1818 when they were disbanded. Um, and he, in fact, they went to, to a different battalion of the 60th afterwards. Oh, right. Uh, so he was a real yeah, military so he, man through yeah. to the core. Indeed, yeah. And, yeah, he rose from being, you know, a captain at the start to a major and then eventually a lieutenant colonel just before he, um, uh, um, just before he retired. And it's quite sad. His, um, his obituary ends with the fact that he sold his commission and invested it in Mexican funds, um, you know, like shares. And then there was, I think there was a war in Mexico in the 1840s. It wiped out all, all his money. And so he left his kids destitute. Uh, um, but, you know, as I said, the, some of them, uh, the eldest son, I think, uh, got commission through a, f- a friend of his, old friend of his father's in the British Army. And they, they, they served throughout the, you know, you know, the Victorian period, you know. Brilliant. It sounds like there might be a book to be written about the Galif family. Then that sounds pretty. Yes, interesting. definitely. Yes, you know, but, you know, I, I, uh, you know, I know Rodney's got, you know, uh, uh, you know, information on them in the Victorian period. I came across some letters. Um, they eventually ended up as an Anglo Anglo Indian family. 
you know, um, and Rodney himself served in the British Army um, in the 1980s. So it's a long tradition. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Well, the other thing I wanted to touch on, and, and you mentioned it right at the start of the interview, but I didn't want to press it then because I wanted to come back to it later, was I know you've done some interesting research around um, promotions from the ranks and yeah. sort of percentages of officers who were former rankers and those, particularly the, the uh, gentleman you mentioned who ended up as a lieutenant colonel. Uh, I have read your blog yeah. post about him, but I've forgotten his name. Um, Stark. Right. It's such a great name as well. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> can, you, can you just sort of uh, give us a brief overview of sort of pr- from your research, how, how common was promotions from the ranks and what have you discovered? Um, certainly in the 560th, um, every sergeant major, so the senior sergeant, apart from one, got promoted uh, to ensign and then usually to lieutenant, a couple made it to captain. Um, so, it, you know, it was fairly common in the 560th. There was usually two or three people in the battalion, who, 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 you know, two or three officers who, who'd come from the ranks. Um, the only one who didn't get promoted happened to be killed. Yeah, so that was a fair excuse. Yeah, that'll, that'll ruin um, your chances of promotion. <laughs> the, the, you know, there are other posts like the quartermaster, who, which was a, um, uh, um, a commission position. Uh, they often came from the quartermaster sergeant. Um, in, I think it was 1809 or 10, uh, a sergeant of the 43rd foot was commissioned into, into the 60th. Um, as well, so you know, certainly in the 60s, it, it was fairly common, but it, it was a foreign unit and it might have been you know slightly unusual. But if you actually look at the British Army as a whole, about one in 20, I think, of officers came from the ranks. And uh, yeah, certainly with the 60th, I never found any evidence that they were treated any differently. Um, certainly, when one was killed in action, the CO you know wrote a letter saying how valued. He, he had been as an officer, um, you know, and I think they were quite often made the adjutant of the battalion, and that's a kind of admin position. You, you know, you're in charge of some of the administration of the battalion and training and that type of thing. So that would be a, a logical place for an ex-ranker to be. Um, but it's, it does seem a lot more common than people assume, and certainly the purchase of p- promotion was actually quite rare. Um, most promotions were gained by seniority or by the fact that someone had been you know, killed in action, so then the, uh, somebody um, had to be promoted. Um, you know, because there was a lot, certainly a lot more demand for for officers than there was supply. You know, you know, so if you you know, to, in order to buy a commission, you had to be fairly wealthy. They went for like thousands of pounds. And then, you know, towards the end of the war, there just weren't that many people who were interested in joining the army, especially if the unit was going to like the West Indies, where a lot of people died of disease or was, a, was an active service, you know, and you had a chance of death. People might not necessarily want to invest, you know, 1500 quid you know, to be a lieutenant in that unit. Yeah. Well, I think what we can do is anyone who wants to know more about uh, Lieutenant Colonel Stark needs to go to your blog and uh, read yeah. all about him because it's a, fan- <laughs> a fantastic story, especially for someone who I guess English was his second language as well. Exactly, yeah. And, yeah, I mean, one of the things I was always interested in was what was the common language in the battalion? Because most of them were German, but they were Hungarian, Russian and stuff. And I 
It never quite worked out if the orders were given in British, sorry, English or, 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 or German. And I remember reading a uh, court martial um, where a German um, NCO was basically, basically said, look, I told the guys to do something, but I don't know if they understood me because they're Russians. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it obviously was quite a language issue. Yeah, um, so that was another fascinating thing is to, you know, because like you did did have Poles and Hungarians and Slovenes and Lord knows what else. And so either they all spoke German or they must have, you know, all got used to English. And would there have been any Englishmen? I mean, you mentioned a couple of officers, but in the ranks, would, would Englishmen have joined? The, could you have volunteered for the 560th? I mean, could, you know, there, there wouldn't have been any recruiting parties. No Englishman would have joined. No, no, you know, the... The later measurements returns break down into like foreigners, British and Scots and Irish. And there's usually one or two, probably officer servants. So if an officer transferred into 560, he may well bring his servant with him. And so they would then get put on the books. Um, but no, you know, the, at the start of the wars uh, in the 1790s, uh, there was a good proportion of the 60th in the other battalions who were, who were British. And there are mostly people who had been desert, who deserted from the British ranks and then been captured and condemned to service overseas for life because the 60th was meant to serve overseas in the Caribbean and Canada. And so quite often its ranks got filled up by people who'd been, you know, condemned you know, to overseas service for life. Right. Makes sense. And then, I mean, we're kind of starting to wrap up now, but before we do, can you give me uh, maybe one of your own favourite stories of the 560th in the peninsula? Maybe some or, or, or you know, a, a story that really stands out for you that you think um, is worth sharing, either of an individual or of an action? Yeah. Uh, one of the best, um, I think, is um, a, a guy called... Um, Inger's Leben. You can find this on the blog as well, and I'll I'll, I'll send you a link. You can put it in the um, uh, description. But uh, it's kind of called Inger's Leben. I don't know much about him. He was a Prussian uh, who, after the defeat of the Prussian army in 1806, um, uh, applied to join the King's German Legion. Couldn't get in, so he joined the 60th. And he went to fight at the Battle of Bizarco and then at the Battle of Albuera in 1811. And he was severely injured at Abuera. He, you know, I've got a letter saying that he distinguished himself, doesn't say how, but he was severely injured and he was treated at the hospital at Elvas and then went into the UK. Which is, you know, it's a fairly interesting story. I, I, I could tie all that together from the casualty reports and that type of thing. But what really made it interesting for me was um, I later found a letter from the commandant of the foreign depot, which basically ran all the foreign units, to the CEO of the, of the 60th saying, look, this guy uh, has left this place where he was being treated by this doctor and not paid his bill. Can you get him to pay his bill? And so I found this letter in the National Archives and just out of chance, I thought I'd Google the name of the house that this doctor uh, worked in. And it turns out it was an, ins an insane asylum. So this guy, had been severely wounded and after his treatment for the, the actual physical wound he'd been treated for some kind of mental illness 
And I think that, you know, is so, you know, we, we, we think of, you know, of shell shock and, and, and PTSD, you know, being a fairly modern, you know, um, um, factor in war. But to just, just to by chance, you know, just by quick, you know, Googling the name of this hospital in, in, in um, I found out it was an insane asylum, all about the, the guy who treated him. You know, it's just for me brought home the kind of cost of war, you know, because like, you know, the, the guys in the peninsula, you know, some of them went out in 1808 and didn't come back to, to until 1814. It's almost six years of warfare. I mean, they wouldn't have been fighting all that time. A lot of the time, they've been in 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 quarters and that type of thing. But you know, a lot of the, you know, if you know, like the, like Lockstadt, if you're involved in 16 battles, that's a lot of action you know, you've seen. And you know, the the battles at the time were very very loud. You know, uh, lots of gun smoke and you know people being blown apart by cannons next to you and stuff. It must have been quite traumatizing. So yeah, you know, so to find some some kind of evidence of that, I thought was you know was a really nice piece of research. You know, so um, that's what, one of my favorite stories anyway. And it and it sounds like maybe there's some uh, some academic research to be done maybe around uh, the sort of mental effects of war in that era. I don't know if anyone's doing that. No, I've you know. I've certainly seen a few academics post on Twitter about it and stuff, but the trouble is, it's getting the data. You know, it's, it's you know, it, you know, it's not something that was particularly talked about. There was no systematic method of treatment. You know, I mean, th this guy happened to be in Insane Asylum, which was like a quite a well-to-do place for people from the aristocracy, and so you know, I just happened upon that. But you know, for an ordinary soldier, you know, you know, they would have just. Yeah, you know, probably. Actually, themselves. One thing, well, exactly. One thing I did find was a lot of people, a lot, of, a lot of guys, um, um, shooting themselves. You know, and quite often, you know, going through the paylists and stuff, you'd see, you know, um, shot himself. You know, I must have seen a dozen guys, you know, um, do that from that battalion. Um, and obviously, you don't know why that happened. You know, you know, there was obviously problems with drunkenness and stuff in in the army as well. Um. So you know, yeah, that that side of the thing, I think you know, could do more research. And then, so after the peninsula, then you met. You mentioned the battalion was disbanded. Did you say eighteen eighteen? Yeah. What yeah. happened between the end of the peninsula war, you know, and the war in the south of France in eighteen fourteen, and and their disbandment? They were at Waterloo, weren't they? No, they weren't. They weren't. Um, at the end of the peninsula campaign, they were down to about two hundred and fifty men, um, and. So they went from the peninsula to Cork and began to, you know, to basically try and bring up the numbers. But because most of the foreign recruits came from foreign prisoners, once the war was over, there wasn't a source of, you know, of, of new men. Um, so when Waterloo came around, they were still in Cork. Um, they were too under strength to be sent. Um, so they weren't sent. Um, but after Waterloo... In 1816, when the King's German Legion was disbanded, a lot of them then volunteered to transfer into the 60th. And by that time, the 5th, 60th were in Gibraltar. Uh, they were stationed there for um, a year or two. And then, you know, obviously, at the end of the war, lots of regiments were getting disbanded. You know, the, the army shrank from, you know, 250,000 back down to about 100,000. And in 1818, um, the... 560th went to Isle of Wight, where they were uh, they, they were disbanded. Although, what actually happened is most of the men transferred into the second battalion, 60th, who were in Canada. And so you quite, you know, so they went to serve there. And then in about 1824, 
um, it was decided to change the 60th from a foreign unit into a British one. So all the foreign troops were asked to leave, and so a lot of them took up land grants in Canada. Um, um, so I, in fact, I was in touch with a guy from uh, a guy from Canada whose ancestor um, left the 60th and um, to Montreal and bought a pub. And, you know, she was like an old soldier's dream. So, yeah, yeah, to camp. But, you know, this guy had been a French conscript, uh, was captured. Um, uh, in fact, he was captured from a convoy going across to the West Indies and then volunteered for British service and served throughout the Peninsula War. And then he, you know, as then he went to Canada and ended up running a pub in Montreal, which must have been quite nice. These guys um, all have such great life stories, don't they? Exactly. Yeah, they really do. They really do. Um, so from 1824, um, soon after that, it, the 60th became known as the King's, King's Royal Rifle Corps. And of course, you know, served through the Indian Mutiny and all that kind of thing uh, through the First and Second World Wars. And today is part of the, you know, uh, part of the rifles. Did you come across in the sources any um, direct references about them, maybe from uh, Wellington? Did he speak much about the 5th 60th? Did he, did he mention them a lot? Yes, uh, they're mentioned in, in his in his in his dispatches an awful lot. You know, um, you know, either in, in individual officers like uh, Lieutenant Colonel Williams, who led the defence of the village of Apprentice uh, de Noro. He was he was mentioned in, in the dispatches. Um, one of Wellington's brigade commanders wrote to him uh, once about the battalion, and uh, Wellington wrote back. Yes, if, you know, basically saying, yes, everything I've heard of the 60th, um, they're an excellent core. You know, so they're, you know, he, he did rely on, you know, he did rely on them a fair bit. Um, and also, I don't think he would have kept them detached in the brigades unless they were doing well. You know, if they'd had any severe problems with morale and, and you know, that kind of thing, I think they would have been put, brought back together. I think the fact that they were, they were allowed to operate independently yeah, you know, it was a good vote of confidence, and as I said, he, he, you know, in most of the battles that they're mentioned, you know, somewhere. Rob really is the man, isn't he? I could have picked his brains all day. He's also a brilliant fiction writer, by the way, but he's put that on the back burner for now to focus on his non-fiction. I, for one, hope that he starts writing fiction again soon. Anyway, guys, I'll be back next month with friend of the show, Marcus Cribb, great guy. And we'll be talking all about the Battle of Talavera and tying that into the book Sharp's Eagle, which is the first of the books written by Bernard Cornwall. It's a really fun episode, light-hearted, but also packed with info about one of the deadliest battles of the peninsula. The episode will be out in plenty of time for Christmas, so look out for that and I'll see you then.